0: Welcome to Famous Last Words, I'm Christopher Ward, and along with me today, the co-host and the creator of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic, Tom?
1: Christopher, you know the saying, never meet your heroes? As people who have met a large number of celebrities, you and I know the meaning of that saying. We've seen it up close, we've experienced it. But what happens when every once in a while you meet someone and they actually exceed your expectations? That is what happened in this first segment that we're about to feature. It's the incredible Stevie Nicks in conversation with the equally incredible Marilyn Dennis in 2001. This conversation, Christopher, went so well that Marilyn and Stevie actually became friends, very good friends because mm-hmm. of it. But even for me, I was thrilled to meet her and so in awe of how forthcoming and disarmingly honest she was. And this was a career highlight for both Marilyn and myself. Had they
0: spoken before, Tom?
1: No, they had never met. They had never spoken before. So it is amazing when you hear what goes on here, how kind of amazing their connection and their camaraderie is.
0: So, aside from Stevie this week, Tom, we also have an interview that you did with Rob Thomas and Matchbox 20. And this is coming off of the massive success of Smooth, the song that Rob wrote and performed with Santana. Now, you also talked about Rob's unusual childhood and the tragedy that inspired perhaps their best song. Also, coming up this week, Lemmy from Motorhead. Your lawn's gonna die. (laughs) But first, Stevie Nicks.
2: Sounds like she's singing.
1: Ooh, ooh, ooh. That's Edge of Seventeen, Stevie Nicks from 1981.
0: Every once in a while, listening back to the interviews we feature, and we do cover a lot of musical ground, you can hear the connection between interviewer and subject. Now, sometimes it's an illusion. Sometimes that's the game that we play, and a lot of artists, I would say almost most of them, are really good at playing it, too. Because they know that if they create this illusion of intimacy for the for the listeners, you know, through the medium of the interviewer, that they get closer to, the, to their listeners in a really special way. Well, the connection you hear here is, I think, unique. It's courtesy of the inimitable Marilyn Dennis, and she sits down with the artist Stevie Nicks. Now, Stevie... She has this wonderful sort of rough charm about her. She, she kind of <laughs> offers herself up to you, right? Mm-hmm. Like she does in her music. She's vulnerable, she's insightful, and there's a soulful quality about her that I think before I started listening to these interviews, I wouldn't necessarily have expected. I like Fleetwood Mac a lot, and I love some of Stevie's songs, but there's, there's a depth to her that, that still surprises this interview is from nineteen uh, no, 2001, right? Yep. And she starts out with a great story about an old friend and that one time that she did not want to write solo.
2: We're going to go back right now to April 24th, 1995. Do you want to go back with me on that? Sure. Okay. And you're sitting at the Ritz-Carlton in Phoenix, Arizona, and you're telling Tom Petty that you're not sure you can do this on your own anymore. Well, what do you mean, yes, Monday? I just sort of was kind of in a rut that I had been in for a while. And yeah. I asked him if when he got back to Los Angeles, if he would uh, just like work on a song with me. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask him to like write me a song because I knew that would go nowhere. But I so I just, you know, and he basically looked at me and he knew that was a red flag. He just knew that that was not a good thing coming from me because the one thing I really don't like to do with other people is write songs. Is that right? Yeah. It's just your own thing. It's my own thing, and it's my own project, and I'm not a little little girl with a science project. It's like, I really don't want to share this with you. I really need to do this myself. Mm-hmm. So for me to ask him to actually, you know, work with me on a song... He knew something was He great. knew something wasn't good, yeah. And he basically just said, you know, for goodness sake, Stevie, you, you know, your whole life's about songwriting. It's the thing you love more than anything. You really gave up everything to be... Songwriter, and I think that you know you just need to get over whatever's bothering you and go home and start writing songs.
1: Wow, that's fascinating how Stevie does not like to write with others, does not play well with others, and how Tom (laughs) Petty knew that Stevie asking for help was really a cry for help because he knew the real Stevie and he knew that that's not her, that's not Stevie talking.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Well. No topic, however uncomfortable, is
2: off-limits. Stevie talks about dealing with drugs. I call them the Coke and Brandy days. Mm. And that was, you know, 1975 to 1985, 86. And you started that and cocaine, I, why? Because everybody else was doing it. Yeah. I don't think that Lindsay and I, either of us, would have ever, ever done drugs, those kind of drugs, mm. if we had not moved to Los Angeles and gotten into a big rock and roll band. Mm-hmm. So I went to Betty Ford. Yeah, that's... That's a pretty 30 easy. Day. Go there, 30 days. Yep. And when I walked out of there, I said, oh, I am never going back to rehab. Mm-hmm. So this is over for me. After I stopped doing coke, everybody was was worried about me. And of course, and I understood that. And they wanted me to, like, go and see somebody. Mm-hmm. If I wasn't going to go to AA and I'm not an alcoholic and I knew it, and I wasn't going to go to those meetings if I wasn't an alcoholic. So I said, I'm not doing that. And they said, well, then go see somebody. I says, all right, just so everybody would leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And um, this man said, I think that, you know, to make sure you don't go back to coke, let's put you on Klonopin. It will, it'll calm your nerves. And, you know, it's like that little bitter, angst-ridden person that I am. Well, he saw that and he mistook that for depression. Oh. And I wasn't depressed. I was fine. Distressed. I Just was stressed. me. Yeah. I was Stevie. I was yeah. me. I was yeah. the girl that, that before 1975. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, what was wrong with that? Mm-hmm. And that is what I'm trying to tell people is Try to remember, sometimes when things don't go right, that's just your personality. That's just you. That's just your little special parts. These doctors, they want to make the whole world a big flat line. And don't even talk about how much money we pay to the drug companies Because mm-hmm. the drug companies are making gazillions of dollars Putting people on drugs they don't need So I just I just retired into my house Stayed at home for 8 years basically And that was tougher than getting that off was cocaine? way tougher That was wow. 47 days and I was really ill So it's like you know So when I got done with that That was kind of my That was what Tom Petty was telling me mm-hmm. You have to get over this you know Nobody's mad at you Everybody understands The world will forgive you yeah. It's okay.
1: It sounds like it was much easier for Stevie to kick her Coke and brandy days than it was her Clonopin addiction. And what she says about the effect of those drugs is so interesting, how it flattens your personality. And when you're an artist who expresses their passions and emotions through songwriting, if you don't have a personality anymore, that must get very, very frustrating. And She explains that so well.
0: I think most artists are willing to go with the edginess and the, you know, the rough ups and downs um, of their personalities in order to get the buzz necessary to create. I mean, that's a terrible generalization, but I think it's largely true. So I love this next piece. It's a little slice of Fleetwood Mac history. It's one that we suspected. We might not have heard it so specifically, but boy, she lays it out. It's the two sides of a story told musically.
2: Okay, Stevie Nicks. What is your favorite Stevie Nicks song? Probably my favorite Stevie Nicks song. If I, I mean, it's really that's a hard question. It's like but I would your... probably say that "Dreams" is probably my favorite song because it's the one that I, I I always enjoy doing it on stage, no matter what. You know, it's the song that never gets kicked out of the set. Mm-hmm. And and when you wrote that song, what was going on at the time? That was uh, I wrote "Dreams." Lindsay wrote "Go Your Own Way." That was our two different reactions to the same thing that had happened. You broke up? Yeah. And so his his was nasty and bitter and, sh- you know, packing up, shacking up's all you want to do, which was totally not true. <laughs> and, you know, and I was like, when the rain washes you clean, you'll know. <laughs> it was like, you know, so that was the difference in Lizzie's and my songs. I was like, you know, I was trying to be the have the Indian philosophy about it, and, you know, he was just like May downright I? angry. Yeah, yeah. So, but those were, the, those were the parallel songs. When the rain washes
1: is that the greatest song of the 70s? You won't get an argument from me. What do you think, Christopher?
0: Dreams by Fleetwood Mac from 1977. Wow. That's such a big title yes. to to attach to any one, you know, three-and-a-half-minute piece of work. Yeah. But it'd be hard to argue with yes. in terms of its enduring qualities. Uh, it's a beautiful song, and it's, it's really simple, and yet... Uh, I don't know. It's there's a sophistication to it. It's, it's really simple musically. Yes, I love it. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I love that song, and I I don't I don't think I know anybody that doesn't. So sure. Yeah, okay. let's make it the best song okay. of the seventies.
1: Okay. So it's funny <laughs> how Stevie describes the difference in the way she and Lindsay reacted to the same event, uh, either a breakup. I just love that. And when she told that story uh, in the studio during that particular interview, I remember laughing.
0: She finishes up this interview by talking about longevity, which is something that we the listeners know has been
2: longer than perhaps she could have ever imagined. I'm just delighted that... a whole set of younger people is listening to my music. I mean, what could be better? I laugh when I think of the fans that when I joined Fleetwood Mac, I was almost 28, so I was still 27. Mm-hmm. So I figure that we had fans that were 20 years older than than that when I was 27, 37, 47. So imagine how those people are now
1: <laughs> <laughs> fantastic interview with stevie nix and Marilyn dennis i was there for that interview and i was actually the producer and i helped Marilyn with the research and some of the questions we kind of talked through these things and then she kind of assimilates that and then asks the questions in a in a more conversational way than perhaps i would write them nevertheless it was right. a thrill to be there and to meet stevie in person and i got her to autograph my copy of rumors And it's one of my most prized possessions. I'm sure you would not be surprised at that.
0: There might be a reveal necessary in the future, (laughs) Tom.
1: That's true. That's Stevie Nicks on Famous Lost Words. Still to come, the writer of one of the biggest songs ever is also one of the coolest people I've ever met. Plus, motorhead in one of the most honestly charming interviews you'll ever hear. Hey, Christopher, I want to tell you about a new podcast that I came across a few months ago. Yeah, you were telling me about this. Yeah, it's called No Sleep Till Sudbury, and it's hosted by a guy Mm -hmm. who's as much of a music geek as you are. I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) And his name is Brent Jensen. And you know how, how it was when you and I first met, Christopher. We just started talking and Zoom, away we went. And the the facts were flying, and our enthusiasm for music was flying. <laughs> I sat down with uh, Brent for the first time a few months ago, and we sat in a donut shop. And honest to God, we just were going off, and it could have been a three-hour lunch. And thankfully, we both had appointments, or we would still be there, and they probably would have thrown us out for being
0: so loud about uh, you know our love you, of music. You yeah. met in a donut shop. <laughs> I mean, it really doesn't get any more Canadian than that that's correct (laughs) it was a maple glazed conversation right (laughs) so what's the format what's the show like well Brett interviews people in music
1: some very famous and some not so famous but all of them interesting and they talk about the songs they love the most in fact they choose five songs that quote Make your skin vibrate. That's that's the way he chooses oh. <laughs> he chooses to phrase it. And I'm preparing my list to be on the show, and as you can imagine, it's very hard to pick five. Sure. Especially when recent artists on the show are poaching my songs. I'm talking to you, Kim Mitchell. <laughs> Kim was great, but he picked one of my songs and he talked about it in such a way that I can't the top nerve. that. You know? I'll do a spoiler alert for you. It was a song I Can't Make You Love Me by Bonnie Raitt, one of his top five favorite songs. And I was surprised that Kim Mitchell would choose that, but it's truly one of my favorites as well. Anyway, that's the podcast, No Sleep Till Sudbury, wherever you find your favorite podcasts.
3: I wanna
1: That's Matchbox 20 and Push from 1997. Big hit.
0: Tom, when your debut album comes out a year after the band forms, and it sells over 12 million copies in the U.S. alone, wow. the scrutiny on the follow-up is going to be intense. Oh yeah. Well, Matchbox 20 handled that and more when they followed yourself or someone like you with the four-times platinum Mad Season. Then there's the incredible success of the song Smooth, singer Rob Thomas' duet with Carlos Santana. Were the other band members jealous? Would you be... Let's get that topic out of the way right from the start. Guitarist Adam Gaynor begins the conversation.
4: There was probably a, a good amount of conscious decision after Smooth to just be Matchbox 20. And I think that the only thing it did for the band was it made it more of a global name of, OK, it's Rob Thomas from Matchbox 20. And then I don't think I think there was you were wondering if it was going to hurt or help when you had the scales of justice out. And over the time in the period of the years, I don't think it could have done anything but just give us more exposure as a band. And, and then it's still it's not like you know the first album like sold like you know two hundred thousand copies. I mean it, it sold quite a lot of albums, and then Rob took his songwriting to a whole different stratosphere. So now you have two pretty strong entities that are working together, and of course it's Rob from Matchbox Twenty, and we're just presenting ourselves as this is you know when it's band time it's band time, and when he's doing his thing you know God bless him he's doing his thing, and I don't I don't think it's a hindrance, and especially in this album I think we're way past the smooth point of you know the only thing we might not do, and I was just. Actually somebody asked me if we'd ever play smooth live and i'm like i don't know right now you know but maybe someday we'll think it's hey, fun 20 and, years from yeah, now, yeah 20 years the from the now we'll have tour. a good time we'll be like yeah let's just play smooth because it's fun at this point you know it's okay to play there. yeah we have, we've never done it like even when carlos carlos has gotten
3: up with us a couple times but we always do all along the watchtower whenever he comes over oh, yeah. it's, been, oh, yeah. it's a lot more fun like carlos has become good friends with the band which is uh, like a, a great side of this and and like when this carlos record came out this new one i wrote some stuff on it but it was it was it was a a thought-out thing to not, you know, appear on the record, you know, like, because now we don't want to re-change the focus. Like, you did Smooth, and that was such an honest thing, you know, because, mm-hmm. because it happened naturally. Nobody expected it to be what it was, mm-hmm. and, you know, I was just getting to be with Carlos, and I thought it was fun. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was, it was kind of like... And, and Carlos understood it as well. Carlos was like, you know, okay, this is... You're with your boys now, and this is what you do now, and, you know, you're back over in your world.
1: Um, it must be really interesting uh, for you, Rob, you're thirty years old, you uh and you're one of the most respected songwriters in the business now. now that, you, that may sound like overstating it a little bit, but you are working with a lot of people that, the stuff that you did by the way with Willie Nelson, I heard that out. That's a
3: great oh, album. Thanks. I yeah, album. I, I love that record. Yeah. I I thought it was gonna do better. Not I mean not because I was on it, because it was pretty quiet that I was on it, which I yes. it was one of my first like I love the idea of of a writing gig. Yeah. You know, just a straight out writing yeah, gig yeah. And, and it being Willie Nelson mm-hmm. uh, who is my idol since you yeah. know, since birth, I think. Um. So yeah, I was. I was. I, I. love that record so much, and I wish it would have. Yes. I wish it would have. You know, somebody go get Willie Nelson, The Great Divide. I'll give. I'll give my money back to you. Just go check that record <laughs> out. It's great. Yeah.
1: yeah. Money back guarantee. Yeah. It's but so good. My, my question is: is it? It must be mind-boggling for you to be, res- be thought of as respected, because you seem like a pretty humble guy, uh, respected in the industry, and and working with all these people who surely you must have idolized over the years, yeah. and. Um, and in some ways, it's almost some ways like you're showing them the way now because because you're kind of on top of what's going on right now and it, it must be kind of an odd position perhaps you don't look at it like that but you know you're, you're you know you're not only hot but uh, but respected, talented and so you know how do you manage that mm. I
3: th- yeah I think it's pretty, it's pretty amazing I like I, I, no one's ever come to me because I'm hip. You know what I mean? Like, I've never been, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm never going to be the Neptunes of the moment, you know what I mean, where you, everybody comes to me because I'm going to write the, what's hip now. But I do like that, you know, the people that come to me are the people that have just continually made great songs, and that's been th- their focus as well. And so it's it's really reciprocal, you know, because, they're, you know, they, they influence me, and then they're coming back for, for what their influence did on me. You know, like, everything that I write, it came from uh, Elton John, it came from The Stones, it came from... Uh, you know, but it also came from the Indigo Girls and, and Melissa Etheridge and Tracy Chapman and and like so so anytime like someone like Willie who who was my biggest influence ever, you know he for him to sing one of my songs, in a roundabout way he's just singing his own influence. You know he's influencing himself all of a sudden. You know because my influence has just been you know all these people who 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 can say so much in just a short period of time. You know use just the right words and not not trying to be overly prolific and you know in in their. Uh, in their, in their usage of words and not trying to be to talk above anybody and not trying to show how clever they are but just trying to speak to people in a language that they understand words that they hear all the time just never quite in that order you know and Willie has the greatest way of doing that the angel flying too close to the ground and mm-hmm. stuff like that so, so yeah I can't I mean I, I, I was gonna cry like when I, when I first got my Willie CD like and I heard Willie singing one of my songs and I was like man this is my words coming out of his mouth it yeah. freaked me out
1: Oh, man, I like that guy, and you can hear it with my fawning over him.
0: (laughs) 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 You know? I try to ignore that, but yeah. Sometimes you can
1: just tell. So first, let's talk about Smooth, which still sounds great, and it led to one of the greatest Grammy wins ever. Rob Thomas won three Grammys alone for that song, Carlos won eight in total that year for that song and Maria Maria and, uh, and the other songs on that album called Supernatural. It was also, I'm talking about Smooth now, the last number one song of the 90s and the first number one song of the 2000s. Oh, I love that fact. That's the kind of geeky stuff that I just love. Wow. Like. <laughs> in 2018, Billboard magazine rated it as the number two biggest hit single of all time. How is that possible? Anyway, they don't explain how they did that that math, but it has to do with number of weeks. It set a record for like the most number of weeks in the top 10. So, uh, So I guess it got extra points for that. Now, can you guess, Christopher, the number one mm. song of all time? And I'll give you one clue. Okay. It was number one in 1960 and again in 1962.
0: Well, it's either the Monster Mash, the <laughs> Twist... Or blame it on the bossa nova. I'm, I'm <laughs> it's got to be a dance song, a dance craze
1: song. That's right. And it's the dance craze song. It was The Twist by Chubby Checker. Yay! <laughs> very good guess. I'm very impressed. Anyway, but back to Smooth. Let's think about how much of an effect that a massive song like that would have on a band that's not involved in the song, but their lead singer is now the hottest property in music. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward as we continue with my 2003 chat with Rob Thomas and Adam Gaynor of Matchbox 20.
0: Here's Rob talking about his unusual childhood.
1: Rob, your your childhood was pretty interesting. You moved back and forth a lot between your moms and your grandmothers. Mm-hmm. Um, what did the un- uncertainty of that time, uh, what did that teach you? What did you learn from that? Sorry, we're really changing. I the
3: think... I think there's a character building in, in, in all the, in all that. Like, you know, when I was 16, 17, instead of going to little league or, you know, the prom, I was hitchhiking around the Southeast. And so there's a, I mean, there was, there was like this, this, this exile, but it was self-imposed that I kind of put myself into, but, but it, it, it had a character that I, that I was looking for that, I, that it, you know, because before I had moved to Florida, I lived with my, my grandmother, and, and we were, I mean, we had no money, like, we were, you know, like, our wood floor went all the way to the ground, you know what I mean, and it was, and, and so we went from that and to moving up into lower middle class, which to us was like we'd, we had made it to the big town, we were like the Jeffersons moving on up, you know, and, uh, and so to go from there, you know, I I still at the same time like from what, from my whole past in, in South Carolina, I didn't quite fit in with the kids in Florida. It wasn't my, you know, I didn't know what where, where my thing was. And uh, and so it was it was kind of like having I don't know that I would be a songwriter. Like I don't write I've never written any songs about, you know, uh hitchhiking or I've never written any songs about uh about spending a couple of years homeless or whatever, but I've never, at the same time, like it, everything comes from that point of view. So it wouldn't, I, I think I would have an entirely different take on things if I hadn't gone through all that period of time and I, and I didn't look at, I think I'd look at the world in an entirely different way. And it wasn't until I got older and I, and I met my wife that my wife would kind of go back and chronicle my, my youth and just be like, that's just so screwed up. Do you not realize how screwed yeah. up this is? And I was just, yeah. oh yeah, I guess that's not normal. Okay. Yeah.
1: You know, it's so very interesting that you can live what is seen as a very unusual childhood, and not know that it's that different. I know I can relate to that, and as I'm sure right. as I'm sure many of our listeners can. Like that's wild. Like here's this kid hitchhiking all over the southern United States. Very interesting.
0: Yeah, here's the story behind one of their biggest hits,
1: "Unwell."
3: That was one of the songs where the second verse kind of started it all for me. So, the whole thing. There's a, a line about a. Uh, you know that I see people whispering and I I think they're talking about me and that whole thing is like my my whole insecurity it's funny that like after the success of the band it only gets more insecure you know what I mean but you become more really aware of yourself and so like if you're I'm somewhere and I see people talking about me and and I never think that they're like oh wow look who that is I always think it's like you know if they know who i am it's bad and if they don't then i'm like checking myself out and so the whole that was like the whole thing sprung from that second verse and, and the writing about you know just my insecurities and having like a bad relationship with myself at the time and but in the end it was a hopeful you know that i that I, you know that i'm not crazy i'm just a little unwell it was a it was a there was a hopeful theme to the song you know behind it all i'm not crazy i'm
4: just a little
1: That's Matchbox Twenty and Unwell from
0: 2003. Another one of their early hits was 3 A.M. and Rob tells the story behind that.
3: Uh, 3 A.M. is is our flagship song as a band. We had a, there was a, the, it was the only song that got left over from the the local band that we were in before this band. Ever we 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 got rid of everything and and I re- rewrote an entire new album like right before we went in to make yourself or someone like you. The only thing that carried over was 3 A.M. That's that's been around forever. Um, I originally wrote it about. The time, I had a lot of time with me and my mom while she had cancer, she was going through Hodgkin's disease, and uh, and it was just about that period, like I was really young, I was like maybe 12 and I had, I was taking care of her so it was just kind of like, you know my experience with that at that time and She always sleeps when it's raining, And she screams And her voice is strange.
1: Matchbox 20 in 3 a.m. What a great song. Boy, that still holds up very, very well. That's from 1997. Boy, that sounded good. Matchbox 20, they represent the 90s so much at this point, but they were really waving the flag for rock and roll, and maybe in the grand scheme of rock and roll, they don't amount to much, but at the time, they were very big, very likable, And they had some great, great songs. And I'm I'm so glad I got to uh, uh, dig up this old interview. I was listening to it uh, a number of weeks ago going, well, some really great moments in this. And obviously with my fawning over Rob Thomas, that that is kind of painfully obvious as well.
0: (laughs) Well, well, there's probably at least 12 million people who would disagree with the notion that they don't count. So,
1: yes, that's and right. And you are yes. one of them, I, right? I mean no, absolutely no disrespect. In fact, I believe they, they earn more respect than they get. That's for sure. This last clip that uh, I was asking Rob about was about the song Push, one of their very, very big hits. Uh, let's hear what Rob has to say about that.
3: When Sorry. we finished Push, and it first came out and it was on MTV, and we thought... We're rock stars now. This is it. We're, you know, we have a song on MTV. We've sold almost a million records. We're complete rock stars now. And then we got around like five or six million records on the first record. and we're just like, we have no clue what we're doing. And we're definitely <laughs> not rock stars, okay, you know?
1: Push, such a big song and a huge album from Matchbox 20, and they have never matched the sales of that album. You know, Christopher, at the very beginning when you said um, they went from 12 12 million sales of their first album and they did so well on their second album and sold 4 million, you know, that's like Tusk compared to Rumors, right? And it would have been... Yeah. uh, That's still very, very, very successful, and yet compared to their previous album, that's considered probably a major disappointment but anyway they're still around they're still at it adam gainer left the band in 2004 and it's funny i actually ran into rob thomas last year in the halls of the radio station and he seemed to vaguely recognize me or maybe he didn't and he was just being nice right
0: anyway i got a well, selfie. It was, it was you it was you or somebody like you
1: right <laughs> anyway i did manage to get a selfie so that was a big moment for me by the way let's get back to smooth for a sec uh, Rob Thomas actually had George Michael in mind to sing the song. And I don't know if that would have really? worked because it's, it really is a rock song. I'm not sure George could have pulled it off. But, of course, George was such a great singer. He might have been able to kind of infuse a different kind of emotion in it. Uh, but I'm not sure he would have been right for that. I actually thought that Rob, with the way they changed his voice in that song, that made it the great song that it was.
0: Still an excellent smooth song fact.
1: Rob Thomas and Matchbox 20 on Famous Lost Words oh my goodness one of the loudest most obnoxious and greatest songs of all time (laughs) Ace of Spades by Motorhead Mm -hmm. and we have a Motorhead interview I found these clips I freaked out sent them to you Christopher what do you have
0: to say I I love this stuff this is good And, you know, they had a motto. Mm-hmm. It was, if we move in next door, your lawn will die. <laughs> <laughs> Thus spake Lenny Kilmister of Motorhead. Right. Anyway, this was a band that, to me, it seemed like they'd always been around. Yeah. With, like, no discernible beginning, but yet a forever place in the firmament of metal greatness, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, Their impact, like that of, say, the Stooges or the New York Dolls, far outweighed their chart success, but they were and are loved. In fact, over time, they released 22 albums over 40 years, (laughs) and there was an ending when Lemmy died in 2015, and his two principal cohorts, Filthy Phil Taylor and Fast Eddie Clark, passed not long afterwards. Fortunately, the fans will never forget the mighty Motorhead, and the website continues with offerings of 40th anniversary releases like tankards, shot glasses, and branded booze. (laughs) This interview with broadcaster Larry Wilson offers up some classic Motorhead moments with Lemmy and Phil. It sure does. Motorhead had to wait for release in Canada. And I don't mean from jail.
3: (laughs) Motorhead's Ace of Spades album is the the breakout album for the band in Canada, in North America, in fact. But you have uh, how many? Four?
5: Four in England, yeah.
3: What took the record company so long to catch on?
5: Nobody picked us up until February this year for this Mm. country. You know, we we just couldn't get a deal. No way. Amazing. It took as long as it did in England to get a deal.
6: Yeah. It was a similar situation as it was in England. You know, it took us years to get a deal in England. For why exactly, we don't know.
3: Um, Resistance to... uh Dad banging
6: music? What's going on? I don't really know. It's because we don't
5: fit into any special category. I don't think. I mean, we get put in with the heavy metal thing now, but I mean, we were going before the resurgence of this new wave heavy metal thing. We yeah. were going two
0: or three years before that. They talk about the effect of recognition.
3: Do you find your life changes when you uh, when you get a suddenly recognition?
6: No, no, not re- not really. It was just uh, it's just really great to see. Uh, Recognition at last, so to speak. Yeah. You know, in the papers, it doesn't uh, doesn't change your life at all. You know, it creates a little bit more of a smile on the old boat race, <laughs> but uh, it doesn't change your life at all.
1: Hmm. You know. Okay, I'm not sure I believe that 100, percent, but okay,
0: I'll give it to them. Okay. <laughs> Here they define their sound.
3: What is the sound? What is it you go after when you go into a studio?
0: Well, we don't like it to sound too. Uh
5: too closely done you know not too clever Mm -hmm. you know i don't like studio tricks where we can avoid them because we we sort of play straight down the line bang 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 rock and roll right and i don't want it all dressed up you know and vic doesn't dress it up at all yeah he just puts down what we do yeah we just try and capture it the way the way we're playing it you know the way it comes out we always go for a first or second take if we can get it
1: very funny that they don't want their music to be quote unquote Too clever. That's a really interesting way of putting it. It's totally
0: believable. It sure is. Well, there's that British expression, too clever by the half. You can see that, you know, being clever would not be considered an attribute.
1: Very good point. Still to come on Famous Lost Words, some cool song facts, but not before Lemmy talks about an amazing moment that happened when Motorhead first walked into a Canadian bar. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Seriously, on what other show can you hear interviews with Stevie Nicks and Matchbox 20 and Motorhead? And there's lots more where that came from. Check out our previous episodes wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Okay, back to this Motorhead interview from the early 80s. Christopher?
0: So there was a happy accident that happened in a Toronto bar. We went down to the Gasworks the
5: first night we were here and uh, as soon as we sat down and uh, this band on stage started playing one of our songs. And they didn't know we were in there because we were around the corner from the stage. Mm-hmm. They were just playing one of our songs, so I walked up on stage and sang <laughs> it for them. Ba- <laughs> Blew them away completely. Ba- <laughs> were, who's this
3: guy? Get this guy off the stage. Who's yeah, this guy trying to horn in on our acting? They here. were
5: called Varouge, yeah. They're very Varouge.
3: Good. I feel like an honour of some sort to uh, sure, yeah. see this band doing your stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, really. it's, you know, I mean. You, you, you it's never happened before, has it? No, never. I mean, really? it's
6: really surprising. You know, you walk into bars and you hear bands playing like uh, the Odd Stones number, was Led Led but, and Brawlers and Led Zeppelin and Yeah, Red and you never once. The only other thing was the company rejects did Motorhead, didn't they? Yeah. That was the
5: only other time, really. Mm-hmm. And that was over in England. school did Bomber, but that was... A right. That, was, that was with you anyway. <laughs> but right, the
6: coincidence yeah. of being so many thousands of miles away from sure. England, and the first bar you walk into, you know... And, yeah, yeah, it was exactly, yeah. couldn't believe it, really. It was great.
1: That's amazing. There's this band that hasn't had much success in North America. They get to North America... And the band is playing a Motorhead
0: song. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. So
1: I got to point out, this must be a different interview because the guy doing the interview now is Rick Ringer. Right. So perhaps Larry Wilson and Rick Ringer were doing a tag team for this interview, but I'm not sure about that. But I definitely know that's Rick. And in fact, Rick and I... Uh, you know, corresponded a little bit on Facebook about this interview when I told him that I'd found it. And he reminded me that it was Filthy Phil on this along with, with Lemmy. Great stuff. So Rick Ringer's on this. Keep going there, Christopher.
0: Well, they talk about that first listen to a new LP.
6: When we're at home, or whatever, which is very, very rarely, you don't, you know, we don't play our own albums unless sort of a friend comes around and wants to hear it, you know. Yeah. But I mean, we actually we, we don't get us wrong, people. We do like we love playing our new songs. I mean, it's great, you know. Every time you've got a new album coming out, coming yeah. out, it's great because you're going out on the road again to, to play new songs. It's like a new, you know, inge- a new injection yeah. of life, so to speak. It's great. I do yeah. tend to run about a bit just
5: after we've done a new album and play it to a few selected. Oh people
6: yeah,
1: sort of of sure, one. yeah. You're proud of yeah, it. I mean, yeah, yeah, you may be sick of, oh, of it, course. but you're proud of it oh, nonetheless. Yeah. You th- I like to get opinions, anyway, on the new stuff that yeah. we've done, usually, you know. <laughs> Interesting. It's, it does strike me as a little uh, fascinating that they would even care what other people think, but, you know, they're musicians. They want to get it right.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah. Now, here, <laughs> this one's going to, I think surprised a few people they talk about their influences they listen to who? I listen to a lot of Joni Mitchell you
5: know I think she's wonderful she's a genius sure invents her own guitar tunes and all that
3: you know? you're not ashamed to
6: say that
5: no I'm not but, but like a lot of people might think oh he's sold out he's given us up you know like, yeah. but
6: it's not I, true I like Dolly Parton. yeah he, <laughs> but I did not write the
5: records much though <laughs> you
6: yeah, know I mean you have to sort of remember that I mean most of the the, the sort of average age I guess of the, the kids who come to the fans is probably you know i mean in, in england anyway we're even getting like sort of nine ten-year-olds up to people <laughs> That's of like, ridiculous, yeah. up to sort of like you know people who are 30 and maybe even more yeah and um as long as they come along and enjoy and enjoy the show and we don't care how old they are or what they are or like. what they are you know punks <laughs> or yeah like. in fact the more the better you know it's great
1: okay <laughs> i now like motorhead way more now that they've yeah. admitted to liking Joni mitchell
0: lemmy you're the greatest <laughs> Okay, Tom. So, if Motorhead aren't a metal band, then what are they?
6: We play so fast
5: we're not like heavy metal, really.
6: Well, no, by the way, yeah, we're not heavy metal. We're hard rock. Yeah, hard rock. Yeah, hard. I mean, remember? Rock. In the, I mean, you know, back in the good old days, yeah. you know, it was hard rock. You know, it wasn't no. had, had this, I don't it know where this. Didn't heavy have this metal. tag. Oh, that's another like,
3: media tag. Sure yeah,
6: right. Yeah. But I think hard rock is a much more uh, apt description of it because mm-hmm. that's what we play. Yeah. Hard rock.
5: Yeah, we don't pull no punches.
1: Okay. <laughs> okay, it's a bit of a spinal tap quality, that answer. Yeah. Well. But I really like these guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Apparently it was hard to make money doing what they did. We've yeah, only you know. ever made a profit on three tours
5: in our entire lives, and that was the last two in England, and the first one wasn't enough profit to be any good to us.
0: Yeah, and
6: that was, I mean, it's minimal, It's not the pro- and the profit margin is not even yeah. worth talking about. And on
5: the last European tour, I mean, that was only them three gigs in Spain, wasn't it? We've got any money out of it, I think. Mm.
6: It's very rare. I mean, unless you're like in the, you know, unless you've got any kind of show, you know, unless you're the Rolling Stones or, you know, in that league, then uh, you don't make any money on tour.
1: Well, yeah, what they're saying is true. There a lot of newer bands from the late 70s, early 80s may have been pretty well known, but they didn't necessarily make money by selling albums or by touring. Now, that's the only way for artists to make money is by touring.
0: It's funny how it's turned around, huh? Yes. Now, I'm not sure the time frame on this interview, whether it was around the time um, that I did my Motorhead interview, but I got conscripted <laughs> to host the metal show on Much One Day. Oh, no. And I was just subbing. I didn't, you know, it was like somebody was going to be out of town or there was no no other VJ was volunteering for the gig. So I'm like, yeah, sure, why not, right? And then they informed me that, oh, by the way, the, your show is being co-hosted by Lemmy and Filthy Phil from Motorhead. I thought... Oh, Okay, that should be entertaining. I didn't really know much about them. Um, but we did it in the sub-sub basement. So it was just the scuzziest part of the building. And each one of them had a 26er of booze underneath his chair. I think Lemmy had um, Jack Daniels and Phil had gin or something anyway, right. which they consumed most of in the course of a one-hour live interview. So you can imagine the direction that that interview went. (laughs) Downhill. Yeah.
1: It went south or (laughs) soused.
0: Yes. (laughs) Well, um, and just to finish it off nicely, though, uh, we were giving away uh, a life-sized Motorhead poster. And so I'm standing up holding this thing because it's huge. Yes. And, you know, giving the conditions for people to enter so they could win. And while I was doing this, they ate the poster. <laughs> there goes the giveaway. Yes. Well, no, actually, I th- I th- my theory is that it became more valuable.
1: Absolutely.
0: With some real lemmy saliva on it, you know? <laughs> and teeth marks. Teeth marks. Oh, great. definitely. <laughs> Excellent. There you go. Motorhead on Famous Lost Words. You're listening to Famous Lost Words and a very special segment entitled Cool Song Facts and to take over, my partner, Mr. Tom Jokic.
1: You know, I often sing some of the songs that we talk about on the show. And I know that's
0: mm-hmm. the cause
1: of much consternation on the part of you and our listeners, but I'm not gonna sing I'm not <laughs> gonna sing lyrics. I'm just gonna sing the guitar part of this. Dan 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 dan, dan. Okay, I'll stop. Anyway, the lyrics for Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple, tell the story of a fan shooting a flare gun during a 1971 Frank Zappa show at the casino in Montreux, Switzerland, setting the venue ablaze. So the guys from Deep Purple were supposed to record there the next day, but they watched with horror from their hotel room as the whole casino burned down, but they got their biggest song out of it. Wow. Wow. That's obscure.
0: I like that. <laughs> okay, your turn. Do you remember Donna Summer's early hits, the, the disco era of Donna? Yeah, for sure. I love those songs. Well, you know, a lot of people wouldn't want to admit they loved those songs at the time because they were seen as very trite, very trivial. And Donna, among them, who referred to I Feel Love as a popcorn track, meaning a throwaway. <laughs> but uh, luckily... Um, the record-buying public disagreed. They became phenomena. And, of course, she also had a career that outgrew all of that uh, and went on to become a you know very interesting and uh, mature artist. Um, anyway, when Brian Eno first listened to this, he told David Bowie, I've heard the sound of the future. Oh, I agree. Did he add 100. his his and his name is Giorgio Moroder or, or not? <laughs> yes,
1: Giorgio Moroder produced that track, and you and I have talked about that before. Where that insistent beat and that electronic sound—it took a little while, but boy, when that caught on, especially throughout the '80s and '90s, it was the future. He just predated it by probably a good five years.
0: And I guess Kraftwerk predated him, right? Yeah, that's right. Speaking of um, bottom end, and just irresistible grooves one of my favorite bands of the 60s and 70s was sly and the family stone and uh, one of their biggest hits was a song called thank you for letting me be myself again if you've never seen it spelled out it's um fa f-a letting me one word be mice m-i-c-e elf, E-L-F <laughs> again <laughs> Anyway, it was notable not only because it was a great song but because of the finger-popping bass style of Larry Graham. Right, right. He played in a duo with his mom who was an organist and he said that in order to compensate for the lack of a drummer – He started thumping the strings with his thumb, and that's how he got that sound, and it became his identifiable sound.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, that song is from 1969. Adam, let's have a listen to the very beginning of that song when that bass kicks in, okay? There you go, Sly and the Family Stone. Thank you for letting me be myself again from 1969 and that finger-popping bass by Larry Graham.
0: Who, by the way, is Drake's uncle. Drake's uncle, that's
1: right. He has a cool family lineage. That's fantastic. So let's move on. Okay, Sweet Home Alabama, classic rock song. Ronnie Van Zant's ticked-off answer to Neil Young's Southern Man. And even Neil Young himself, Loved that song. He said, I'd rather play Sweet Home Alabama than Southern Man any time. That's what Neil said. And the admiration was mutual. Van Zandt wore a Neil Young t-shirt on the cover of Leonard Skynyrd's final album, Street Survivors. And according to legend, after the plane crash, Ronnie Van Zant was buried in that Neil Young shirt. I don't know if that's true or not, but that is a legend.
0: Kind of ghoulish item, <laughs> but okay.
1: All right. <laughs> Okay, so our final cool song fact for this time around is about the song What a Wonderful World by Sam Cooke. You know that song. It's so good. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. So before that song came out and was a hit record, Sam used to sing it for the women that he met. And Sam really did meet a lot of women. I read a biography of him, and he was a charmer, (laughs) and boy, was he popular so he would sing that song for women he met and and they'd say oh my god like what song is that And he goes oh no i i just made that up for you <laughs> and so he,
0: he, oh, man. he
1: was smooth the, the cheesiest songwriter move it of all really time right? oh i just made that up for you but but he'd written it he'd written it weeks and months before probably had it in the can in terms of recording it as a single
0: hey you know what I used to sing that song to my daughter to sing her to sleep, and she loved that song. She used to say, Daddy, sing the student song. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Because of the bridge, right? The, you know, I don't claim to be an A student. That's very good. That's very good.
1: Great song. Cool song facts on Famous Lost Words.
0: That's a wrap for this week. Our show is created by Tom Jokic and produced by Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. I'm Christopher Ward. Hope you'll join us next week for Famous Lost Words.